0: Refresher on grave disability. Um, the aim here is to spend just an hour kind of talking about basic principles around grave disability, how to assess it, what is sort of a good rubric for thinking through grave disability, intended to be a refresher. Those of you who've heard about grave disability before um, will give you just a little bit of a reminder of one way to think about assessing grave disability. And this is is of course a, a collaborative uh, product. This is something uh, uh, a, a way that we've uh, discussed grave disability that's uh, benefited from a lot of input from providers and um, from DMH administrators who uh, help us think through how clinically to think about grave disability. In talking about grave disability, you know, m- my uh, main aims are to help everyone on the team it doesn't matter your your training, whether you're a clinician, not a clinician, Uh, everyone should have a reasonable sense of how to recognize a client you're working with who may be greatly disabled. And that's important to me because we really wanna set the stage around grave disability for listening and dialogue. Decision-making about grave disability is always difficult, always, always. The implications um, are uh, huge at times never an easy decision and always one that benefits from deliberation and dialogue. And so to equip everyone on the team with the same kind of framework and rubric for understanding grave disability and the gray areas, I think that's quite important. Um, So uh, uh, being able to deliberate requires a kind of, Uh, shared framework. And so even someone who is not going to be writing a hold, that individual on your team, their views are very, very important, both in this uh, process of deliberation, but before and after a hold or any other step to manage GD. Everyone on the team really should be be equipped to participate in this dialogue. Uh, I think that's very important. So that's how this information is framed. It's framed to be as accessible as possible to the widest variety of team members um, that you may be working with. So just quickly, this is really the way that uh, I begin in talking about grave disability is to look explicitly at what the text of the statute says. I'll say more about what the statute is and where it comes from. This text will be really the orienting um, structure for our uh, framework that we'll discuss today about grave disability, a condition in which a person as a result of a mental disorder is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. We'll go back over this again. This is uh, uh, something we will interpret in this framework. We will get to an understanding of what this might mean in different circumstances. So first I'll give you a bit of the legal and ethical context for this definition of grave disability, Uh, lay out some key principles. And it really is the case that in the first half, of the 20th century. Um, it really was a doctor and sometimes a doctor in collaboration with a family member who would decide that an individual needed to be in the hospital and decide how long that individual stays in the hospital, when that individual is ready to be released from the hospital. Um, This was uh, something that uh, uh, physicians were empowered to do, families were empowered to do, and there wasn't a lot of oversight about how those decisions were made, and that led to a variety of problems uh, in various directions, and uh, we've moved away from that sort of uh, physician-centered or family-centered model. We've moved towards something that has much more structure to it in our current statutes around grave disability, and and really this um, uh, process of getting a more firm and shared sense of how we want to talk about grave disability began with the Community Mental Health Center Act. And that is because it was this Community Mental Health Center Act that began to emphasize the importance of outpatient, community-based care, not just hospital care, but having places where people could get care for a mental illness in the community. And 1963 was an important starting point for that. Uh, A big, important step, of course, though, was the passage of Medicaid in 1965, or Medi-Cal as we call it, in California. And that accelerated deinstitutionalization organization, um, and it also provided some direct financial support to individuals who were living in the community. So it still is the case that an SSDI benefit is one way that people with a disability will pay for housing, for instance, and pay for basic personal needs. And that started with the passage of Medicaid in 1965. The definition of grave disability in California and the process for managing grave disability Um, was enacted in 1968 in the and petrus Short Act in California. And um, it's important to look at the six boxes, rectangles there on the right here. These highlight for you the authors of the 1968 bill had a set of goals and intentions for this bill. And here they are, these six goals. Um, They aimed to end inappropriate institutionalization. As I mentioned, this sort of relatively loose and unstructured process where a family member or a physician could determine whether a person lived in or outside of a hospital. Um, Let's put an end to that loose system. Let's uh, clarify exactly what the rules are here. That was one big aim of the LPS Act. Um, They had considerations around public safety, and they were thinking of cost. Uh, Hospitalization is very, very expensive. Let's understand that it's being utilized in the way that it uh, uh, can benefit people. Um, They also saw a need for more prompt evaluation and individualized treatment. So it is a truism in medicine when you have a loose system, like this hospitalization process where a physician or a family member says, you must be in the hospital now, that's going to exacerbate inequities. There will be some well-positioned families, uh, well-resourced physicians who are able to preferentially get better treatment, for some individuals and other individuals without those resources may not get an evaluation. So at the time of the passage of the LPS Act, that was an issue they were uh, attentive to in authoring this is that there's a need for prompt evaluation and for access, improving access for individuals to, uh, to treatment. The aim in the LPS Act as well was to always serve individuals in the least restrictive environment. If They don't need to be in a hospital for safety, they should not be in a hospital. Let's allow people to get care in the least restrictive environment that is safe for them. Um, of course, safeguarding rights uh, and individuals' rights uh, and due process was very important. So instituting a process for judicial review was important in 1968. Um, and then to protect vulnerable individuals, um, still the case today that individuals with severe mental illness, individuals with the most severe of the severe mental illnesses, have much higher rates of crime victimization than others. And so a recognition there are vulnerable individuals in the community and the LPS Act intended to provide some sort of protection um, for those individuals, uh, allowing them to to thrive as much as possible in systems of care. Um, These six goals are ones we still recognize today. The LPS Act has not solved these problems. We continue to want each of these six things for the clients that we serve. Uh, But the authors of the LPS Act really uh, uh, had in mind these same sorts of goals that we can still uh, uh, identify as important up to today. So LPS AIMED TO EXPAND THE SYSTEM OF COMMUNITY-BASED CARE, um, uh, INCREASE THE TIMELINESS OF SERVICE TO PEOPLE THAT NEED IT, AND DO THAT IN A WAY THAT CAN REDUCE COSTS AND ALSO MAXIMIZE THE USE OF LEAST RESTRICTIVE SETTINGS. Uh, LPS ACT PUT INTO PLACE THE SYSTEM OF CONSERVATORSHIP. TODAY WE'RE GOING TO TALK ABOUT LPS CONSERVATORSHIP. There's another system of conservatorship that we won't say very much about today called a probate conservatorship. Uh, A conservatorship is someone who can um, uh, act on a person's behalf to protect his or her interests when he or she is unable to care for himself. That was put into place in the LPS Act of 1968. Uh, Let me say a couple of other things about ethical and legal frameworks for our definitions of grave disability. Routinely in our work, we have some fundamental, often unspoken, ethical principles that guide our decision-making. And there are two that are quite common in our clinical work with people with uh, mental illnesses. The first is the importance of autonomy. And autonomy simply means An individual's right to self-determination, an individual's right to choose for him or herself, uh, an individual's right to have preferences uh, enacted and acted upon. We, as providers, we value autonomy. We try to support autonomy. We try to uh, uh, improve capacity for autonomous decision-making in our clients. That's a fundamental ethical principle that guides a lot of our clinical work. Um, Similarly, beneficence. Beneficence simply means that we want to do good for our clients. We want to do good for another person. We want to provide something good to them in the course of our clinical work. Um, um, Fundamental to our work, we are here to help people. We're here to provide something better for them that they wouldn't have without us. Beneficence is just something unspoken and orienting for all of us in clinical work. Typically, these two ethical principles work together. We can do both at once. We can both support someone's uh, autonomous decision-making, their right to self-determination, and we can do something good for them. Um, they often work in concert so seamlessly that we don't even have to think about them. Um, we can do both at once. Grave disability is sometimes one area where these two ethical priorities uh, can feel like they're their intention. Um, so we're going to think about um, circumstances where beneficence and autonomy doing good for someone and supporting their autonomy, where they might sometimes feel like they clash. So we frequently talk about this neglect over protect continuum. Um, so this is a continuum that explains the relationship between beneficence and autonomy in our clinical work. And on the one hand, on the right hand, we call this the overprotect pole of the neglect overprotect continuum. On the overprotect pole, we are behaving clinically in ways that are uh, overprotective and undervaluing of that individual's autonomy. So in the name of beneficence, so again, this this is is in the service of our fundamental, very important ethical principles. We are behaving ethically, but we're over prioritizing beneficence. We are saying we can get her to do the right thing. Our client will arrange things for her. So she has to do it in the safest way. We're undervaluing our client, her, her own ability to make her own decisions. We are saying we're going to kind of channel her decisions in the way we believe is safe for her. That is, a, 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 is again, this is an abstract, imaginary situation. That's a situation we, where we are overprotecting. We are overvaluing beneficence at the expense of the client's autonomy. So that's that right-hand pole here. Again, another place where beneficence and autonomy are not quite working in concert together. Now, on the other end of things, the neglect end of this neglect overprotect, we are uh, allowing the individual to be autonomous, yet we aren't uh, uh, doing good for that individual. On the neglect end of this poll, it's her choice. We're supposed to support choice. Let her do what she wants. At its extreme, this can lead to neglect. So if an individual has a choice that is uh, uh, one that will not be safe, for that individual but we nonetheless as clinicians want to support that choice at the extreme we can end up being neglectful we may not be doing enough good for that individual beneficence has been too minimized in this situation we may be over prioritizing autonomy so that's that neglect and of the neglect over protect continuum ideally we're somewhere right in the middle we are balancing beneficence and autonomy or we're furthering both at once Um, This is just a a rubric we use to sometimes think through the ethical dilemma that emerges around grave disability. Okay, sometimes intention, doing good and supporting self-determination, As a society, we value autonomy. We put a lot of stake in autonomy. It's very important not to limit autonomy or to be explicit about situations where we may be limiting an individual's autonomy and have a strong justification for that. So the LPS Act is an example of carefully defining when autonomy could be limited. Um, And it's symptoms of a mental illness that determine that Uh, Beneficence can override autonomy in certain ways, in certain circumstances. We'll walk through what that can look like for you. Um, Grave disability is one of a very small number of examples in medicine uh, or uh, societally where we do limit autonomy to help an individual manage their health in a safe manner. Grave disability is one circumstance. There's a separate legal framework where an individual lacks decision-making capacity. So this is classically a circumstance where an individual is having a heart attack, they do not believe they're having a heart attack, and the physicians in certain circumstances will have a a way to assess the decision-making capacity is lacking and act nonetheless, overriding that individual's autonomy, act in ways that keep them safe, uh, incompetence is another legal term that has to do um, with an inability to understand one, one circumstance, typically as a result of a cognitive impairment such as dementia. Um, so, grave disability, just one example of a few small number of examples where autonomy is limited. So, it is the case as mental health professionals. We are sometimes in circumstances where we will limit an individual's right to choose for him or herself in order to protect and provide good care, in order to act in ways that are beneficent. Um, So these are a few examples of how we do this. So if an individual wants to die, plans to kill herself. I will do this now. I want to die and kill myself. We as mental health professionals will have been empowered to limit that individual's uh, ability to choose. And we will insist that they're in a safe place where they are not able to hurt themselves. Similarly, if they have an imminent plan to hurt someone else, we have been empowered as mental health professionals to limit that individual's ability to choose that harm to someone else. And we can, for instance, put them on a 5150 and have them hospitalized to keep that other individual Safe. Similarly, if someone has a delusion, they believe that someone else must die in order to prevent the world from ending or prevent uh, something uh, other, a grave thing from happening uh, uh, in a court with a delusional belief. We also can limit that individual's autonomy, prevent them from acting in that way. Um, again, in order to provide good care and maximize safety. Um, delusional beliefs that severely compromise safety of self or others is often the circumstance that we're confronting when we think about grave disability, I'll go into that much more. Uh, It's along the lines of these uh, examples where we do limit autonomy in order to further safety. Just returning you to the text of the statute because we'll look at this text closely as we think through how to evaluate for grave disability. Yes, can safety also include hoarding, not allowing pest control? So yeah, so safety can mean many things. We tend to think we're going to limit someone's autonomy for the briefest period of time possible. So we need to know the risk is imminent, that it's dangerous, but safety can look like a lot of different things. And it certainly could be someone is living in a context that is not safe for them for their own health um, as a result of hoarding, it certainly is possible. It's a good example and one that we will echo as we look through um, how to interpret this statute. How to assess for grave disability. Um, The first thing I wanna say is we, in our work, we often hear grave disability described in ways that are not correct. um, That just aren't what grave disability truly means or should mean for us as a clinical definition. So we may hear other providers saying things like, this individual can't be gravely disabled because he's eating and drinking. He's getting food, he can't can't be gravely disabled. This person can't be gravely disabled because she's engageable because I can build a relationship with her and she's open to working with us, so that must mean she's not gravely disabled. Um, This individual has a plan to get home. I'm seeing him here in the ER and he knows how to get home. He can't be gravely disabled. Um, He's been on the streets forever. He knows how to survive there. He can't be gravely disabled. None of those are accurate definitions of grave disability. Um, It might be that the individual who would say these sorts of things doesn't understand the statute or the definition of grave disability, or these sometimes are just shorthand ways of saying, "Mm, I don't think this fits a grave disability category, but they're not accurate definitions of grave disability. And I'm gonna show you a better way to assess grave disability as we go. The second thing that happens, the other thing that happens, Sometimes these are interrelated, but the other thing that sometimes happens for us, we get confused. We get tricked by the limitations of our system. Um, We understand how hard it is to get good care for someone experiencing grave disability. So um, the thing that ought to happen to make someone safe often is very, very, very difficult to make happen in our current system. And as a result, we sometimes forget, convince ourselves, get confused that this individual actually isn't gravely disabled because the ER would never admit him uh, or there's no bed for him or the police aren't gonna help us get him in the hospital. So that must mean that he's not gravely disabled, false. An individual should uh, 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 have the label of grave disability, your clinical judgment. I think it's quite important for us to decide clinically that we believe someone is experiencing grave disability, even if the system isn't there yet to help them with that. I really do encourage people to try to make a clinical assessment separated from what the system is going to do in response, um, because the gaps in the system um, shouldn't uh, allow us to avoid making this determination or really clarifying what we're seeing. So whatever it is that's going to happen with a grave disability determination, I think it can be important for us as clinicians to make that determination, understand clinically what we think is going on in the circumstance, um, and not allow the system to undermine our understanding of what the clinical determination means. Question here in the chat about if we're working with people experiencing homelessness, we're gonna have a lot of examples of how that might come up, uh, uh, the phenomenon of grade disability might come up in the context of homelessness. These examples can apply to other contexts as well, um, but we'll give several of the examples as we go forward. Okay, so here's my framework for interpreting and evaluating, understanding, assessing grade disability. Um, Two steps. The first thing I try to do is interpret the motives for the individual client's actions, understand why that individual is doing what they're doing. And then secondly, I try to assess their abilities to keep themselves safe in a way that I'll show you. So first step is understanding what's motivating this individual. Second step is to understand their abilities and their uh, capacity around safety. And this mirrors stems from the language of the statute. So interpreting motives is the step of understanding this phrase as a result of a mental disorder. Um, Assessing abilities, is understanding this phrase, unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs. Two different determinations here. First, understanding what's going on for a person and motivating their behavior. Second is to see how are they doing to keep themselves safe. So let me show you some examples of this. So this phrase in the statute, as a result of a mental disorder, That blue section is what we're going to think about first. This is uh, what is the individual's uh, motivator of their behavior? And um, as a result of a mental disorder typically means it's it's caused by a mental disorder. It's due to typically what we mean by uh, as a result of a mental disorder is there are symptoms of a mental disorder that are motivating this individual's behavior, driving this person's behavior. So those symptoms of a mental disorder could be hoarding, as our participant in the chat mentioned someone has uh, a a, a mental illness and it is causing hoarding as a symptom um, as a result of a mental disorder. That's what's motivating their behavior of uh, of being in a place uh, that's unsafe. Their delusions are also a symptom of a mental disorder that can drive someone's behavior. Uh, Hallucinations, hearing voices, having voices tell you to do certain things. Um, other examples of symptoms of a mental disorder um, that fit into this framework of as a result of a mental disorder, symptoms like uh, amotivation, uh, symptoms like agitation, hypersexuality, symptoms of mania, um, also a lack of insight. is a symptom of a mental disorder, Is a configuration uh, of this disorder that is driving that individual's behavior. Um all examples of things that fit under that framework of, as a result of a mental disorder. Um, It doesn't matter that you know what the diagnosis is, Uh, might be that the person has schizophrenia, it might be that they have bipolar disorder, it might be that they have um, a a traumatic brain injury that you may or may not know about, Um, in the end, the the, the the illness that emerges may not be what you imagined at the time this determination was made, but there are circumstances where it looks like a mental illness and it looks at, to the best of your understanding, it, it, it must be the symptoms of a mental illness. I think it might be this diagnosis. It really isn't important that you have the right diagnosis at the time, as long as you have a strong, Uh, clinical uh, 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 determination that this is, uh, there is the the mental disorder is present. Um, That's all that's required. So um, the symptoms that you see that are driving the individual's behavior are the most important things. We see that someone has a delusion. um, This probably is a psychotic disorder and it is causing the individual to behave in the ways that they do. Uh, That's what we're looking for here in this uh, evaluation. Okay, we know many, many different ways in which symptoms of a mental disorder, mental health symptoms can shape behaviors. And this is what we're talking about in that uh, first uh, assessment. So maybe that delusions are driving someone's unusual behaviors, um, they may have false beliefs regardless of the facts you provide, that individual may uh, not change their beliefs. They may believe they're being persecuted. They may believe they're communicating with people who are not present. They may believe they have a a mission or a purpose to do what they're doing. Um, They may believe they are not the person you know them to be. So delusions can give people some false ideas that can strongly shape their behavior. Um, Hallucinations as well, as I mentioned, people can not only hear voices, but have voices telling them to do certain things. And those hallucinations can drive uh can drive behavior in various ways. Walk through that bus is an example of a hallucination that can drive someone's behavior. So uh, 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 we we can talk much more about this. It may take a lot of time clinically to understand exactly why and how symptoms are driving an individual's behavior. Um, And that's because of the nature of the illness. Um, People who are experiencing delusions may be very afraid to share with you. They may have difficulty communicating or being very clear with you. Um, Over time, you begin to recognize some behaviors that surely seem like they must be driven by uh, a psychosis, by a delusion or by hallucinations. They're unusual enough, difficult to explain enough. And you get the sense that there must be, in the presence of other symptoms of a mental illness, you, there must be a delusion that is driving this individual's behavior. Um, I'm going to show you an example of a, a made-up client we've called Hector. Um, Hector believes, sort of, come to see over time. He doesn't quite say it so explicitly, but he believes his delusion is that he has a a solar powered heart that he carries with him in his backpack. And uh, in order to charge his heart, he needs to be outside. And that is a a portion of his delusional belief. And so it comes to be clear that that's part of why he's been leaving hospitals, leaving housing settings. is because he believes that his heart must be charged outdoors. Let me take a moment and talk about the dementia question in the chat, because it's an important one. As I mentioned, it's not important that you know exactly what the diagnosis is, as long as you have symptoms of a mental disorder that appear to be driving behavior. Now, if you know, or if a physician who's evaluated this individual knows there is the presence of cognitive impairment, Uh, for instance, a person doesn't know what year it is, they don't know what the month is, they don't know what the date is, they can't name some presidents for you, there's some clear and marked cognitive impairment and there may very well be a dementia diagnosis. And LPS conservatorship is not the proper pathway for that individual. Um, The proper pathway is a different pathway. It doesn't provide the same uh, kind of uh, legal framework as LPS conservatorship but the proper pathway is a probate conservatorship for an individual with dementia. Um, So uh, uh, it is of course a thing that we see that an individual has both things. They may have some kind of a dementia and they may also have something that seems like uh, a psychotic illness, for instance. And of course, some dementias can cause hallucinations, can cause delusions, can cause symptoms that are also symptoms of another mental disorder. But essentially when dementia is present, LPS uh, usually is not an option for that individual. They usually need a different kind of solution when there's an obvious uh, neurocognitive impairment such as dementia that's present as well. So I'm spending a lot of time on this first determination, actually, but I think it's often the one that takes us the most time to figure out um, in what ways are symptoms determining this individual's behavior? What ideas are driving this person's behaviors? Are they reality-based? What is motivating this person to behave as they are? Is the person able to choose other ways to behave? Are their behaviors... So unusual or bizarre that you can't imagine a reality based rationale for them. And you think they may be related to, for instance, a delusional belief or symptoms that are impairing the individual's ability to choose. Um, these are all some of the questions you can ask yourself in evaluating a client. Um, I've got several examples here we can walk through, but I'm very curious if anyone would like to give an example that you know of, nothing identifying, you can leave out any uh, uh, details that are very, very specific, but do you have general examples of things that you've seen like symptoms, hoarding is a good one. We've seen that hoarding can be a symptom and that can be something that is driving someone's behavior in a direction that is not safe. Um, um, Uh, Uh, Other examples that we see frequently in uh, serving people experiencing homelessness, sometimes people will have a belief that they work for a government agency, for instance, and they've been tasked with taking care of a corner or waiting for further instructions about a mission, for instance, that Uh, In a reality-based world we know is uh, not coming, uh, but that individual has that purpose, a delusional purpose for being in a particular place that they are in. Um, There may be as well delusions of persecution. Um, This or that person, if I were to move from this spot, I would be uh, in danger from this or this. That person who is harassing or following or watching me, There can be paranoid ideas um, that are driving someone's behavior. Um, An important point here is, for individuals who use substances, we can often see hallucinations, delusions, symptoms that look like psychosis that might be driving someone's behavior, Um, but we think it may be a result of intoxication and maybe that they're using right now. Generally, when we're evaluating grave disability, we'll do it over time, Um, especially with clients you're working with, you'll see over time that these beliefs are fixed, immutable, there's little you can do to shift the belief um, and not um, a much uh, change and and wavering. So that's not true of substance induced uh, psychosis typically. Substance induced uh, uh, psychosis will uh, uh, improve uh, resolve once the individual is no longer using. Okay. Um, we've got some good examples here in the chat. We uh, have a couple of examples here of people uninterested in care, refusing care, not wanting treatment or care as a result of a uh, perhaps a delusional belief. So an individual believes she is pregnant, she is not and says as a result of that, um, taking medications is not uh, uh, not okay. Great example of a symptom driving someone's behavior. Um, not attending to hygiene due to delusions and paranoia. So this is a good example. You may see someone very reluctant to bathe or shower. Um, So reluctant they don't do it for a long, long period of time. And, you know, you may have some sense, boy, I just don't quite understand what's going on here. Um, Is there a delusion? So I can imagine, I can make up the delusion that someone believes if they were to shower, they would have certain forces come to them in the shower to hurt them, Um, an alien, a persecutor, a force, something that once they disrobe in order to bathe, they'll be vulnerable to. Um, That's off the top of my head, a kind of example of a thing that could be uh, a delusion, probably something they're so guarded, takes you a long time to really uncover that that's the reason they're not showering. Um, But something also that's not going to be very amenable to your uh, uh, persuasion to you trying to urge them and encourage them and reassure them that it's actually going to be safe. If that individual has a delusional belief that they're going to be particularly vulnerable from these imaginary forces in the circumstance of bathing, it's going to be difficult for you to uh, have them uh, take care of their hygiene. On the other hand, you may be working with an individual living on the streets who does something like smear feces on her body. And you might originally think, my goodness, this must be some delusional belief. Why would someone do that to themselves? But actually, over time, you realize that individual is choosing to do that because it keeps other people away from her, keeps her safe in one way or another. It's not a delusion. Actually, that's a very uh, 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 intentioned, uh, reality-focused uh, behavior. Uh, so it may take a little bit of time to to differentiate those two two things. That individual who isn't uh, bathing may simply be, in fact, that they've been experiencing homelessness for so many years that the experience of bathing is quite uncomfortable and unpleasant. And it just takes a while for that individual to feel safe. Not a delusion, not a symptom of mental illness, um, something uh, much more amenable to change and to uh, your therapeutic intervention. Um, yes. Okay. Good example the individual who says to you, I actually own four houses. I don't need a permanent supportive housing application from you because I have $80 million and four properties in Malibu, and that's where I live. In fact, I'm not even homeless. I have four homes in Malibu, and that's where I'll live plenty of money. So. That very well could be an example of a delusion that's driving that individual's behavior, making it impossible for them to access uh, services and housing with you because they have this false belief that they have housing elsewhere. Very good example. Okay, not adhering to medication. So we see frequently individuals who are reluctant to take psychiatric medications. They may not believe that they have an illness. Um, uh, they, They may believe they've been cured from a mental illness, just do not identify with any of the the labels or the the symptom list, actually quite common in many populations. And that um, is a symptom of a mental illness, that lack of insight that might be driving behavior. Um, These are all great examples. And I just want to emphasize for you, these are perfect examples, and they're only the first step of evaluating grave disability. You've said to yourself, I do have an instance here where an individual's symptoms are driving their behavior. Now, your second evaluation, your second step in your assessment of grave disability is, is that behavior, is that uh, circumstance, uh, making it so this individual is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. So this is our second step. So as a result of the hoarding, as a result of the delusion, as a result of the hallucinations the individual is hearing, um, they're not able to provide for food, clothing, or shelter. Does say or, um, uh, that, that that means any one of those three. Not able to revive for any one of those three. Your individual who says, I have four houses and $80 million in the bank in Malibu. I'm not homeless. I don't need your application to housing. Technically, clinically, that is an individual who is unable to provide for shelter as a result of a delusional belief. Um, uh, repeated failures to maintain or access safety, food, clothing, or shelter is uh, this second determination. This is this step of assessing abilities, understanding the way that this behavior that's driven by a symptom is shaping that individual's safety. So can my client provide for his or her basic needs? Critical second step of the evaluation of grave disability We have examples of someone who says, I do not have a mental illness, I'm not experiencing any delusions, I do not need to take these medications. You could say to yourself, that is a symptom of a mental illness that is driving their behavior, but can that individual nonetheless provide for basic needs? Um, Have you observed that the person is not able to provide for food, clothing, or shelter, can only survive with the help of others, um, won't accept food or clothing that you offer. Um, When assistance comes along, is unable to uh, take uh, advantage of that uh, uh, assistance as it arrives. Um, Do symptoms, delusions, hallucinations, prevent him or her from making use of your offers of housing to make it likely that housing cannot be sustained? Um, we've already mentioned, we see this. These are examples we, we, we see. Someone has a delusional belief about the CIA requiring them to stay on a corner, having housing that isn't in fact true. Um, uh, as a result of those delusions, they're not able to uh, accept your uh, offers of services. Okay, you may um, observe something like refusal of food that you offer. The individual may say, I'm only able to eat food that's white. Anything else, uh, I can't touch that. They may say, food that you bring needs to be approved by an overseer until that overseer tells me it's safe. I cannot eat that. That coat that you've offered to me, I'm not allowed to wear that because it's come from the wrong source. These are all sorts of ways the delusions might mean that someone is not able to accept uh, supports and services that you bring to them. Um, you may see things that suggest challenges with safety, and safety, uh, safety broadly defines sort of difficulty maintaining food, clothing, and other needs Um, someone not using clothes appropriately, not using clothes in ways that would keep uh, him or herself safe in the weather. You may frequently see a wound or an infestation that that individual seems not to uh, notice or care about and most definitely is not caring for in the way that you would want. You may see rotten food nearby. You may see someone in one spot for a very long period of time, dependent upon others bringing food to them. That again is a circumstance where that individual is not able to provide for basic needs on their own. Um, You may see someone making no progress over weeks or months despite uh, risks, vulnerabilities, and your your offers of support. Uh, These are all just signs you might see of people with challenges keeping themselves safe. Okay, so you all have given some great examples of putting these two things together, where it's the symptoms, the mental illness itself, as a result of a mental disorder, that is making it not possible for that individual to care for their basic needs is stripping them of the ability to keep themselves safe and uh, provided with food, clothing, and shelter. believe signing, is just made up examples again, signing name to a housing application would lead to arrest and so refuses, can't sign anything despite the need for uh, safer housing. I have a responsibility to surveil this corner for the CIA, I'm not allowed to leave, even if it's raining, even if it's snowing, even if I'm freezing, even if I've lost my shoes, even if I have a leg infection that needs to be seen by a doctor, I'm not allowed to leave because the CIA insists that I'm here. That's an individual who, as a result of a mental disorder, is unable to provide for uh, basic safety. Um, You'll see this frequently, I can't go back to a boarding care. I can't go back to housing because the people that work there are in a cult. They are uh, doing dangerous things to people um, at night and it's not safe for me to be there. Um, uh, uh, So a delusional belief that is shaping someone's ability to be open to the things that you're offering. So over time, and as this is evaluated as fixed, false, immutable, uh, that is a circumstance where someone could meet criteria for grave disability. Okay, more examples. The individual says to you, there are two men over there in uniforms. If I leave this bench, they will execute me. I'm not allowed to go. Hector's circumstance, I have a solar powered heart, I have to live outside to charge it. He's unable to be in a hospital long enough to have health needs cared for, unable to move indoors despite health and other circumstances. I can't go to a shelter. There are uh, uh, KGB agents who are searching for me there. They'll do dangerous things to me. Uh, Lee's an individual without any resources. Okay, so that's the paradigmatic framework. Um. The challenge for you as a provider is that this is a story that unfolds over time and it often unfolds in little fragments, and the details are critically important. So it's not simply observing that someone isn't willing to leave a corner. You really do want to get to the heart of what it is that's driving them. In fact, this particular view, for instance, about the CIA, the details really, really matter. And the trouble is, <laughs> The story never comes out, never, usually doesn't come out in quite a straightforward way like that. Um, So Hector, who believes he has a solar powered heart, it's not like if you go and visit him, you could convince him that maybe, in fact, it is okay for him to be indoors. He'll probably be all right. His heart should be okay. Hector's not going to say in response to that, you may be right. It's not likely I have a solar powered heart. You know, it does seem a little odd, never heard of someone with a solar powered heart. It's true that you can't live if your heart's been replaced with a solar powered heart. this isn't going to happen. You won't be able to talk Hector out of his delusional belief. That's just the nature of the illness. You won't be able to convince someone that their false belief is in fact false from your point of view. In fact, it could work the other way around. You convince Hector more and more and more that you're not on his side because you don't get it because there's a solar powered heart that needs to be charged. You keep telling him that's not true. Eventually he's just not going to trust you. So um, uh, trying to talk someone out of a delusion is not going to work. Um, The other thing that doesn't tend to happen when you work with an individual experiencing a delusion, Um, you know, that individual is unlikely to explain fully to you, beginning to end the ways in which that delusion makes them unsafe. Um, I will die if I live inside for more than three days. Hector will not say this to you. (laughs) My heart needs sun every day to work. Uh, Machines don't need heart medicine. He's laying out here in a way that will never happen in reality, exactly the way that his delusion makes it um, impossible for him to be in a safe location. It's it's something you have to observe and test out um, uh, in your work with Hector to understand the degree to which he still is free to choose safety despite this delusional belief. That's really what you have to look for over time. Um, So this is a cartoon of how things may go when you try to talk with Hector. Um, You, as a clinician, you come and you say, Hector, I wonder if you could tell me what you think is going on with your heart. (laughs) Hector has no need to tell you that, really doesn't elaborate for you um, uh, exactly what he thinks the the challenge is with his heart. Um, uh, Hector, I uh, heard that you had your heart removed. In this scenario, it actually uh, turned out there was a, uh, another person who heard a fragment of Hector's delusion that he believes his heart was removed and replaced by the solar heart. You as a clinician, bring that to Hector. You try to get more information. Um, Hector says, long time ago, I can't say anything more about that. Hector, I'm worried about your health. Your legs are swelling. I wonder if we should see a doctor. Mm, I'm fine. Not necessary. Uh, I'm all right. I don't need to talk with you further today. This is a very typical interaction with Hector, who's experiencing a delusion that is impacting his ability to be indoors, his ability to access medical care in a hospital, uh, potentially impacting his uh, legs, which are now swollen. Um, and he's really not telling you much about it. So you're trying to piece it together. You know, Hector, Officer Jones told me about the heart you carry in your back, Pat. I imagine that's very important to you. Hector's angry and backs away from you once you know the full story. So, uh, very difficult to get the full narrative from an individual. It takes time, patience, not pushing, but being open to hearing it from a client. Uh, and also takes a little bit of observing what they're doing and seeing if you might be able to piece together what might be going on, and then checking that with the client. So this is back to the very beginning. Again, two steps: understanding that mode uh, behavior is. The result of a mental disorder is a result of symptoms uh, or uh, syndromes, conditions that an individual has as a result of a mental disorder that's driving their behavior. That's how you're interpreting their motives. It's it's driven by symptoms of a mental disorder, uh, fixed, unable to be swayed, uh, nothing that can uh, actually be, uh, uh, that, that they could be talked out of. This is driving their behavior. It's the first part of your evaluation. Second part of your evaluation is noticing that that um, uh, behavioral drive as a result of a mental disorder is making someone unable to provide for basic personal needs for food, clothing, and shelter. If both of those are present, you can say clinically, I do believe this person is experiencing rape disability. That's what the court, that's what uh, the judge will also be listening for. Uh, we can make a clinical diagnosis Other parties will make a legal diagnosis, um, but those are the key components. And you will mm, use your clinical skills to learn the full picture of what's driving an individual's behavior and the way in which it's undermining their safety. Um, Learning through collaterals, others who are observing historical information about the individual can sometimes be very crucial to filling in the blanks to really clarifying. Uh, Clarifying what's happening for the individual. Okay, so question in the chat, a good question. So at what point would Hector be diagnosed with grave disability? Um, So in reality, uh, often what happens on the team is someone says, now I've got this whole story. Officer Joel Jones told me the reason he keeps leaving the hospital is he believes his heart's been removed and he has to charge the solar powered heart that he has in his backpack. Boy, that really sounds to me like he's gravely disabled. He's not willing to accept any supports we have for him, for his safety um, or his medical care, because he has this belief about his heart needing to be charged and being unable to be indoors. So, someone on your team might say that sounds like he's, he's that that would meet criteria for grave disability. Others on the team might say, well, you know, Hector's still able to get help when he needs it. He still takes food from us. He, he will go to the hospital. He won't stay there, but he'll be there for a brief period of time. I hear what you're saying. It does seem like a delusional belief that's really fixed and you can't talk him out of it. And yet he seems like he's still able to keep himself minimally safe right now, right? And so that becomes a debate on your team. And you all think that through. And there may be some of you who say, you know what, he's, this is date Clearly he's going to be disabled. The question now is what do we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? Um, uh, uh, often you get close enough that then the determination becomes, all right, what, what needs to, could happen um, in relation to this. Well, none of this is helpful things I've already reviewed for you. The only thing I would say here, um, big changes, no changes. Often when you're in this space, you, some people on your team, really think grave disability is what we're talking about here, Um, is now the time to do something about that, such as to place someone on a hold. What you want to watch for are big changes and no changes, stasis, static condition over a long period of time, that does not improve, no changes, that can be worrisome. Hector, for instance, this never improves. He keeps having problems, uh, medical problems, keeps going to the hospital, keeps leaving early. This goes on for long enough. Um, that's a scenario of uh, no changes, That is a uh, uh, can be unsafe. Also, you can see big changes that can make you very worried that as a result of grave disability, someone really isn't able to care for themselves. They lost a lot of weight. They stopped moving. They used to move around, and now they're just sitting in one place. So these are warning signs. Okay, so as I said, you think your client may be gravely disabled. Discuss with others. See if they agree. See if they believe these symptoms of this mental illness that cannot be uh, improved are driving that person's behavior, and it's a result of those behaviors that that person is unable to care for their safety, discuss it with others, see if they agree with you about the determination of grave disability. You may wanna look back at their history, see if they've ever been LPS concerned before, have they ever had uh, an AOT referral or something like that that would indicate that this kind of inability to care for the uh, safety of the self as a result of a mental illness is longstanding. See if there's anything you can do with treatment. So delusions do get better with uh, psychiatric treatment, voices get better. A lot of symptoms can improve with treatment. If that individual is open to that, it's an important thing to work on. Um, Think about whether a hold can stick, can make sense, uh, and when and why. What are the resources you need around that individual to see that that 5150 can result in a helpful hospitalization um, that at the very least gives you some assessment information or perhaps actually a way to uh, move toward a a safer placement. Um, Understand who you're going to need. Is it housing partners? Is it other teams? Is it uh, uh, family members? Who do you need to uh, move the individual to safety in the presence of grave disability? Consider the referrals that you have for housing um, and, and who might be available to uh, work with you around uh, new placements for the individual. Questions you'd like me to speak to before we stop, feel free to throw those in the chat. Thank you all so much for joining.